I'm going to assume uh, that you're just like I am and that there's probably a certain movie, <clears throat> a certain book, or a certain TV show that you just seem to enjoy more than any other one. Uh, I'll have to be honest so that you know my sanctification is not complete to tell you that the movie I watch the most is Dumb and Dumber. Um, not flattering, but that movie, it's taken me multiple times to watch it to catch some of the jokes. And every time I watch it, I'll catch a new joke that I hadn't seen before. And we do that, though, as humans, don't we? We watch shows, read books again and again just to catch something we hadn't seen before. Well, this morning, we are going to examine a passage that I'm going to assume that all of us already know, uh, that it's not something that's new. It's not something that uh, I've found in the back portion of a, of a small prophet book that we haven't read very often. This is a very common story. But I'm going to ask you this morning to think of it as anew, uh, to look at it again with a fresh look. And perhaps, if you've not heard it before, the story will be very intriguing. But if you have, and I'm sure you have, that you'll find some new things in it this morning that we maybe we haven't seen before. The Passover, in summary, is the coming out party, if you would, for, uh, Egypt, or for Israel. For up until this time, uh, they were in slavery. And we know the, the basic uh, work up to it. There was uh, ten plagues. The first nine came, and Pharaoh wouldn't let them go until eventually the tenth came. And that tenth one was horrific, and that the firstborn of all the land would be lost, firstborn male of all the land would be lost. God gave Israel a way out. He told them if you just find a lamb, one year old, you pick it out on the tenth of Nisan, that would be the first month for them eventually. You choose that lamb, you hold it for four days or five, depends on how you want to count ten through fourteen. You hold it for five days, and then that evening we're going to ask everyone at the same time to slaughter the lamb, and then we're going to eat that lamb. And then that next morning, we're leaving Egypt. That was the summary of the Passover, and we know what happened. And we know what happens afterwards, and Pharaoh gives chase, and the Red Sea incident, we all know. But that is the summary of the Passover. But I'm going to ask you again this morning, if we begin to take a look at it in a little more depth, if we could. First, the Passover was really the first national event when we think of God's people. For instance... Up until that time, if you really think with me, the book of Genesis was really all about just people and families. It was about Isaac and Rebekah, and it was about Jacob and Abraham and Noah, Adam and Eve. We see God's plan of redemption begin in the garden, and he makes to Abraham in Genesis 12, 2, a promise. He says to Abraham, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. He makes that promise some four to five hundred years before we encounter our story in Exodus. And at this particular point in time, no one really in the world knows who Israel is. They're a non-factor in human history up to this point. The Israelites know who Father Abraham is. They know who Jacob and their ancestors are, but no one and the world knows who Israel is. But God says, I'm going to make good on a promise. Turn with me to Deuteronomy, chapter 7. Deuteronomy, chapter 7. 
verse 6. God, here's why we encounter the Passover. For you are a people, this is God speaking through Moses, you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. That's why God chose them and pulled them out because of a promise he made. Our God is a covenant keeper. He made a covenant with Abraham to make him a great nation. And now we're on the precipice of that. The Passover is that coming out, if you will. This is the first time we actually begin to see Israel as a nation. This is, in essence, if you would, the birth of the Old Testament church. As we think as we think from here forward in all of Scripture, we think of Israel as God's people. Before, it was the forefathers, the patriarchs. From now on, it's God's people. He unifies them this way. He has them together. On the 10th of Nisan, the 10th of the month, they all together select a lamb and bring it in. Together, collectively, as a whole, as a unit. On the 14th, they together will slaughter their lambs and sacrifice the lambs. They will have meals together and unified on that evening of the 14th and going into the 15th. And they will together leave Egypt. It is the first time we see Israel in a national perspective. But not only is it a national event for them, more importantly, I think, for us to study this morning, it was a family event. Turn back with me to Exodus 12 and read verse 2 with me. This is what he says in verse 2. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your account for the lamb. In other words, he made provision that there be no waste. But this design of Passover was very much rooted in the family. Now, you wonder why. Because God could have easily just commanded Moses to bring the people out and put Moses on some high ground somewhere and sacrifice a single lamb for the whole congregation and affected his purpose. God didn't have to do any of this. And yet he chose for his model and for the lesson he's about to bring, he chose for it to be in a family setting not just national. They acted as a nation within small units of families. It was very much a family event. God's covenant has always been rooted in the family. It's one of the great designs of how God continues to perpetuate his covenant promises. He does it through the family. And he shows us here, starting with this particular model, again, he keeps it rooted in the family. Verse 6, it says, And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month. That word keep isn't just simply bring it and tie it to a tree in the corner. That has a connotation of caring for it. Matter of fact, in the NIV, it actually translates it. You shall care for the lamb. 
So on the 10th, they were to go out and get this lamb and bring it back to the house. And they were to care for it and keep it at the house. Now, parents, we know if you have a lamb at the house for five days, you know what's going to happen with the kids. They're going to be looking at the lamb. They might play with the lamb. They will definitely show some kind of affection. It's a lamb. They will definitely show some kind of affection to the lamb. They might even name the lamb. The kids will be growing fond of it. They'll be examining it because the lamb was supposed to be without blemish. They'll have five days to see that lamb, make sure they understand. But what's really going on here? Parents, again, you'll know exactly what will happen. Will not the kids be asking mom and dad, why the lamb? I mean, this is new. Why the lamb, mom and dad? And all across the land of where Egypt is, the parents begin to give the message of substitution and God's grace. He uses the family to begin to teach about substitution and God's grace because they'll tell little Ben and they'll tell little Levi, this lamb here, God is going to do something terrible very soon. All the firstborns are going to die in Egypt. This plague, the, 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 uh, the Passover plague, this is unique because think about this. The first nine, and I guess we could discuss the first one where he turns the water to the Nile to blood, did not affect the Israelites. Of the remaining eight, it depends on where he started the river to be red. It could have been upstream from the Israelites for all we know, and my suspicion is it was, that multiple times in those first, the next eight plagues, God actually says in his holy word that the hail didn't affect the Israelites and the locusts didn't affect them. And the boils and the frogs, he kept that away from the Israelites. But this plague is going across all of Egypt. It will affect the Israelites. And so they have to take preparations. And mom and dad have the opportunity to share with the children and learn themselves about God's substitution, that God has made a way through substituting that lamb's sacrifice for us. And he'll tell them, we're to slaughter this lamb, and I'm to take a hyssop bush, a very thorny bush, almost spongy, and I'm supposed to take it, and I will dip the blood on Thursday night, and I will put it across the doorposts and the header, the lintel. And we're going to do this so that God and his Passover angel, will, or excuse me, his death angel will pass over us. There was teaching going on for five days all across Egypt, learning about God's substitution and grace that he had provided away. So that by the time they leave Egypt and head out, it's easy for me to surmise that all of all of Israel was on the same page, that they knew that God was gracious, and they knew God had provided a way for them. They all would know it because they God had designed it for the family. But you know what? It wasn't just a family event either. It would have been very personal. Just think, if you were in that household, again, for five days, staring at that lamb, if you were the parent, how gracious you would feel towards God that you would not lose your firstborn, that you wouldn't lose Calvin, that we wouldn't lose Jonathan, that you wouldn't lose Jack. How gracious would, how grateful would we be? And what if you were Calvin or Jack? What if you were the firstborn and you were in that house staring at that lamb for five days? knowing that that lamb is saving your life. It would have been very, very personable. 
personal. What if you were the sisters and the brothers, knowing that my brother is going to live because the lamb here is going to sacrifice for him? It would have been a very personal event. Even that evening, after they slaughtered the lamb, they were to eat the lamb. They would be thinking then, too, how grateful they were. I, uh, I grew up on a very small farm. I wasn't a farmer. I'm not going to pretend I am. But my grandpa was, and our house was on the same land. So I got to witness uh, all the butchering of the hogs and the chickens and the cows. And I, I saw the whole operation in, in uh, firsthand. And one year, we were raised, Grandpa was raising pigs, and he had a little runt. Um, and so he pulled the runt out so it wouldn't die. And, uh, and we named it Petunia. And he gave it to my sister and I. We named it Petunia, so Petunia the pig. And, uh, and we, we got to raise Petunia. We did the, the bottled milk and everything, and we cared for that pig. And it eventually continued to grow. It was, it was uh, healthy. And Grandpa eventually put it back in with the rest of the pigs. And I don't remember what meal it was. I don't, I don't remember. It had been a while. Um, and we were at the table eating ham. And something came up with my sister about Petunia. And Grandpa just kept eating. He was real quiet. And uh, and I remember, and I don't remember exactly how, so I'll have to kind of someone indulge because I don't remember how it came up. I remember my sister saying, "Well, this this isn't petunia, is it?" I, I st- and it was real quiet at the table. And I, you, know, you probably you probably heard the forks drop. You know, like, oh no. And I remember going, "Oh, we're eating petunia," and because uh, Grandpa just kept on eating, he didn't. You know, that had a personal effect on everybody at the table. What would it have been that evening knowing that that lamb that they probably named, they were caring for, had given its life as substitution so that the firstborn, the brother, didn't have to die? It was very much a personal event. Look with me also in chapter 11, verse 7. It was a night of significant contrasts. Verse 11, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 6 and 7, 6 and 7, it says this. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man nor beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Think of the contrast that night of the 14th. God is saying, I will bring such peace and calm upon the Israelite camp. Now, we know in the later that there's 600,000 men, so, the camp, so Israel is over a million people. I don't know how many homes we're talking. It's a big place. It is going to be quiet. Kind of like that night when the snow comes. Don't you like that? Go outside, the snow's falling. It is so quiet. It is so still. God is going to put everything in the Israelites' camp at total peace. The dogs aren't going to bark. No one's going to growl. Everyone's inside their house. It's still. And at the exact same time, just outside the camp, an entire nation of Israel, cries of anguish like they've never heard, from Pharaoh down to the slave girl's son, are dying and wailing and screaming like none have ever heard before. The contrast of those two things must have been astounding, that the Israelites would know Again, that God was gracious. And it spared them because of that lamb. It was a night of major contrasts. And lastly, before I move on, it was also a night of beginnings. Notice verse 12.1. 
The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. To this point in time, Israel has lived in an Egyptian society. But now they're going to set their own calendar. Now they get their own national calendar. Israel actually kind of works off two calendars. They have the sacred calendar, the religious calendar, and then they have more of the lunar calendar. They actually change the months of the years on the seventh month. But this one is from now on begins their religious calendar. It all starts with the Passover. For there's a whole litany of religious rituals they follow throughout the year and festivals. It all starts with the Passover. Nisan will be their first month. It's a, it's a, um, a day of beginnings. From here forward, when they go out, they'll be known as the Israelites. Up to this time, they were secret and they were just slaves in the foreign land. Going forward, they're the Israelites. They will get the law. They will have kings. They'll have prophets. But this was the beginning for them. It was the Passover. It was their beginning. So we've seen Israel. Not only is it a national, not only was it a family, not only was it personal, it was a an incredible night of contrast for them, and it was their beginning, all wrapped up in one event. And there's plenty more, we just don't have time. But I want you to now, in our mind's eye, if you will, fast forward. We're going to hit the fast forward button on the VCR or the DVD player. We're going to zip 1,500 years, maybe add 30 more. We're going to pass all the kings. We're going to pass Solomon. We're going to pass David. We're going to pass, uh, we're going to pass the dividing of the kingdoms. We're going to pass the Babylon exile. We're going to go through all of it, and we're going to land in Jerusalem in 30 A.D., the year that Jesus is crucified. And we're going to land there in Jerusalem. The Passover is still being observed. Only it's taken on some changes. But so is Jerusalem. There are three festivals in the Jewish calendar now that everyone travels back to Jerusalem. For hundreds of years ago, after the captivity, Israel was scattered abroad. Remember, they were everywhere now. They were all across the Middle East. But three times a year, devout Jews, not all of them did, but the Hebrews would come back to Jerusalem three times a year, this being the first. It was their first calendar. They would travel back. They would come back singing. Have you ever heard of the Songs of Ascent? Psalms of Ascent? They would be singing these psalms as they headed up the hill towards Jerusalem. They were coming back to Jerusalem. Both men and women had to come back to Jerusalem for this particular one. The other two, only men needed to come back. But this one, everyone was to come back. Jerusalem was somewhat of a metropolis now. It was a happening place. It was under Rome control. It was, of course, through the corridor between Egypt and Greece and Rome. It was a very busy place. Estimates are anywhere between 100,000 and a million people lived in Jerusalem at the time. But before Passover, because everyone is coming back, at least six weeks out or more, the city began to make preparations. Roads would be actually repaved or, or holes cured. All the ovens to roast the Passover had to be brought out. We were talking thousands of ovens being brought out because they had to bake, as we saw, roast the Passover land. People would be coming from all different directions to the point where Jerusalem was overflowing. There would be tents all around the outside of Jerusalem, camped everywhere inside Jerusalem. They would literally pitch tents on roofs. They had pinched tents inside yards, on corners of street tops. Jerusalem was overbooked. It was packed. It was a happening place, if you would, at that time. They would take, and think of the significance of this, in Bethlehem, the shepherds raised the sheep for the lambs to be sold at the temple. The lambs without blemish come from Bethlehem. 
isn't that a significant um, understanding of, the, of Jesus and what symbolism that is? They would be brought through what's called the sheep's gate and herded down into the temple because tens of thousands of people coming from outside of town don't bring their own lamb. It's too far to travel. They have to buy the lamb. When they get to the temple, they can only buy it in temple currency. But they might be bringing with them Greece currency or Roman currency. So what would have to happen? They'd have to have a currency exchange. Hence the term money changer. And they were getting ripped off. So when they would come into the temple to buy the lambs for their lamb without blemish on the 10th, they would have to buy their lambs. They would have to have many, many lambs. The Sadducees were in charge of this process. Would be the ones that have to bring those lambs in to sell them to them. It was a crazy, loud, boisterous time. When they wanted to actually slay the lamb, they did no longer did it at the house like they did back at the first one, like the first Passover we just read. They would actually take the lamb, put it on their shoulders, and they would walk to the temple. Can you imagine on the 14th what that temple would have been like as tens of thousands of families would bring their lambs on their shoulders coming to the temple? There were 24 different divisions of priests. 23 of them were on duty. Not just one, 23. There was one still left to be out about uh, outside of Jerusalem. All there to assist in the sacrifice. While they were sacrificing, it took three, they would sacrifice the lamb. A priest would catch the bull. There were so many priests on duty, he would simply hand it to the one beside him. That priest would hand it to the one beside him. It would hand the blood down the line until it got to the altar, and the priest would cast it on the altar. And the jars just kept rotating. While they were doing that, other priests sang and quoted the psalm that we did this morning for our call to worship. The Hallel, it's called. Uh, verse uh, Chapters 118 and I think 113, I forget exactly which ones. All this going on, and here's the striking thing. The real Passover lamb is in Jerusalem. And yet, they're carrying tens of thousands of lambs. As a side note, I wonder, when did Jesus know... He was the Passover lamb. You know that question when Jesus was a baby, did he know everything? And the answer is no, touching his human nature, and yes, touching his divine nature. But some point in time, those two knowledge bases would have come together because Jesus knew he was the Passover lamb. When did he know? I, I, I don't know. I mean, we don't know. But my guess is when he was young. And yet he still came every year to Jerusalem. He still pitched his tent. He still lived on somebody's rooftop. He still participated in the Passover. He still ate the lamb knowing he's the lamb. That still happened. However, this particular Passover is different because this is the final one. On the 10th, when they're going into the temple to choose the lamb, the spotless lamb, the lamb without blemish, the real lamb, this is Palm Sunday, the real lamb is actually coming into town. He's riding on a horse and he's in front of everyone to be observed that this lamb is without blemish. The people see him coming. They throw their robes on the ground. They holler and shout, Hosanna, glory to God. In essence, ascribing exactly what is worthy to him and in essence, pronouncing the death sentence, if you would, saying he is the Messiah. He is the king. This is the lamb without blemish. He is the real Passover lamb, and he's riding into town. But Jerusalem is busy. Tens of thousands of people are looking for the lamb without blemish, and he's on a colt riding into town. 
What stark irony and contrast this Passover must have been. And for those five days of examination to see that the Passover lamb really was without blemish. Now, the Jews had a principle beginning somewhere uh, uh, two, three hundred B.C., don't know for sure. But following the Passover, immediately kicked into gear what's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For seven days, they were not allowed to have any leaven. And Scripture actually mandates no leaven was to be found in their house. So the Jews, even to this day, have a game that the dad, the father, leads. where They go around the house with a game with the kids, teaching the kids about the Passover to throw away all the leaven out of the house. It's somewhat of a game, but it's a teaching tool for the family. In essence, we see Jesus, the real Passover lamb, throwing out the leaven again because at this last week, he once again throws the money changers out of the temple. He's purifying his house. That's the real leaven, and he's purging it out. We see Jesus doing that. We see Pilate stand before the congregation in Rome and illegally declare Jesus without blemish. He is the Passover lamb, and he's in front of and display for all. Now, there's a lot of discussion if you start doing some reading, and frankly, it gets more confusing the more you uh, try to read, about what day actually was Jesus crucified. Um, the church tradition has stuck with Friday from way back in the early church. I don't know. I've read a lot of good arguments that actually occurred on Wednesday. I would like to think it occurred on Thursday just because of the irony of it. Uh, but probably it did occur on Friday uh, because your know, Sabbath's involved. And when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell time from a Jewish perspective. The days were different for them. And uh, John a lot of times tells time from a Roman perspective. The clock was different for him. So the overlaps are hard to understand. And quite frankly, I, I can't tell you for certain. But just think if it was on Thursday why they were out crucifying the lamb, their little, their, the little one-year-old lamb, the real lamb was on the cross. I don't know that to be true, but it doesn't affect Christianity. The, the truth is the real Passover lamb did die on the cross. And he did die at the same times that they would have crucified the lamb. He was, he was, he was, uh, he was crucified in the morning. He was dead by three o'clock in the afternoon. The requirements for the Passover lamb, with the, uh, not a leg or not a limb was to be broken, not a bone. That was the same with Jesus. He was the Passover lamb. And the irony of it all is they were carrying their lambs to the temple, probably bumping into Jesus. Somebody probably did. And the real Passover lamb was there. How awful. How, 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 how amazing to miss that. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Hear the, the festival of the unleavened bread? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. First Peter 1, 18 tells us, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but... With the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Revelation repeatedly says, we see this repeatedly in Revelation, worthy is the lamb that was slain. What did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus coming for baptism? Look, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The New Testament is very clear. It teaches us that Jesus was really the Passover lamb, the real one. 
But my point this morning, to be quite honest with you, is not to convince you that Jesus was the Passover lamb. It's my strong suspicion everyone already buys that argument, agrees with that, that Jesus is the Passover. The New Testament tells us. My purpose this morning, as I conclude, is hopefully to spur you to the same reaction the Israelites had 1,500 years earlier. If I could ask you to turn me one more time back to Exodus chapter 12, you might still be there. But this time, if you would turn over to chapter, or excuse me, verse 25. We didn't read the whole thing this morning simply because of time. The whole chapter, because it's rather lengthy. But I think this is one of the great verses of the Passover. Starting with verse 25 of chapter 12. And when you come to the land that the Lord has given you. Now this is, this is still outlining what's going on with the Passover. God is saying, here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to do it. And oh, by the way, I want you to keep on doing this forever. And so he's not only talking about tomorrow or this coming festival, he's talking about forever. And he says in, 20, in 25, when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, again, that teaching moment to the family, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses. When they understood the grace that was about to be bestowed upon them, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Have you ever wondered or thought, why the blood on the doorposts and over the lintel? Blood dries within 30 to 60 minutes, and it dries brown. It probably wasn't even visible on the doors. They just sprinkled it. It's old wood, probably. It probably absorbed it right up, like paint would. But when it does dry, it's brown. Why that? Why ten plagues? Why locusts? Why the why why doorposts? Why a lamb? Why one year old lamb, or or a goat? Why sacrifice at all? I mean, what, what was what's with the whole ritual here? Well, luckily in this passage, I don't mean luck that way, fortunately in this passage, a better choice of words, all the way through this entire process of the ten plagues, God repeatedly tells us why. I have three examples for you I'll read to you. There's plenty more because it it happens all the time. Exodus 9, verse 15. For by now, this is God talking to Pharaoh. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. And you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Chapter 6, verse 7. I will take you to be my people. The strong covenant language coming. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. Chapter 10, verse 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. 
and that you may tell in the hearing of your sons and your grandsons, there's those teaching moments again, how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done amongst them that you may know that I am the Lord. God's overarching principle in this and in all of humanity and creation is to bring glory to his name. His name be made great. We prayed this morning, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The overarching principle above all else. And the way this happened was so that God would get the glory. Just think, if we try to do it any other way. You have two million people enslaved. What would be the human way that we would try to break out of slavery? I would think it would be revolt. There would be some form of military action, some form of coup, some sort of um, alliances, some way, some military action to get out from underneath that slavery, right? God says, now, I have a better way. I'm going to take a shepherd who has a speech problem, who can't speak very well. I'm going to send him into the court of the most powerful nation in the world. I'm going to have him tell to let my people go free and clear out in the wilderness so they can worship me without any remuneration or any money. I'm just going to ask him to do that. He's going to say no, and then I'm going to just simply beat him with a lamb. I'm going to take a lamb, and I'm going to use that to beat the most powerful nation on earth. Now, that's God's way. Our way would be something totally different, right? But that's what God did. Turn to Numbers 33. Six. I'm going to lead my people out, and they're not even going to be a revolt. I'm going to do it in such a way they want us to go. Not only do they want us to go, they're going to pay us to go. That's God's way, not the way we've done. Look at Numbers 33. Numbers 33 begins to recall the stories of Israel's journey. Verse 1, these are the stages of the people of Israel. When they went out of the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron, Moses wrote down their starting places, stage by stage, by command of the Lord, and these are their stages according to their starting places. They set out from Ramses in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month. And on that day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly. In the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, on their gods also the Lord executed judgment. God said, I'm going to do it my way. We're going to do this with a lamb. And it's going to be so powerful that you're going to walk right out the front door. They're going to see you. They're going to be glad to see you. They're going to empower you. And you're going to walk out triumphantly while they bury their dead. I mean, I can almost see a a scene in the movies where, I mean, Israel was a war zone by this, or excuse me, Egypt was a war zone by this time. They tell us in the plagues earlier, the hail that came down decimated the trees. They have boils on their skin. They have they had frogs. They had locusts. The trees are rolled over from the hail. Their rooftops have collapsed. It's a war zone. 
And now they're digging graves to bury their dead. God had laid waste to Egypt in spectacular, pun intended, biblical fashion. And he takes his people right down Main Street, right out the front door, triumphantly. That's how they left. That's God's way. But nothing's changed. Let me ask you, if it was up to us, how would we execute our plan of redemption? I mean, think of us. We're, we're, we're stuck. Gravity holds us to the ground. This body, it's flesh. It can't fly. It, we we're born with this nature that causes us to constantly and repeatedly violate God's law. We have no hope. There's nothing we've got that we can do. According to scripture, we're not even looking to get out of our plight. There's none that are righteous, no, not one. None that seek after him. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. There's nothing we have that wants us to get out of Egypt. And God says, I have a plan. I'll bring a lamb. And that one lamb I will sacrifice. Do you think about that when John says, behold, the lamb of God? Invert that and kind of put it in today's kind of vernacular language. Behold, God's lamb. It was God's lamb. They brought their lambs. Do you realize to redeem us? God had to bring a lamb. It's God's lamb. He brings the lamb for that Passover. And it tells us in Isaiah, it pleased the Lord to bruise the son. It was God who sacrificed And it's God who then takes that hyssop branch, if you would, and dips it in the blood of the sun and paints it on our doorstep, on our uh, uh, doorposts, if you would, and tells that death angel, not that one, pass over that one. And we experience that same peace and calm that the Israelites did because judgment is no longer on us. That peace they experienced that night was against, was from judgment. The judgment of false worship and idol worship. That's what they experienced. And they, the Israelites, had total peace from that. And he gives us, from the blood of the Son, that same peace. Because judgment is not ours. Romans 8, therefore now there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. We get that. And he leads us triumphantly right out of the war zone behind our Savior Jesus. When the people heard what God's plan was, they worshipped and they obeyed. I encourage you this morning, would you worship the Lamb this morning and obey Him? Let's pray. Father, indeed, you sent that lamb as a substitute for us so that we would have peace. May we enjoy that peace. May our faith be in that lamb as you lead us triumphantly into spiritual blessings and ultimately to heaven. Glory to the lamb, in Jesus' name, amen.